0: I'm here with Richard Sanderson. Hi, Richard. Hello. (laughs) Um, I've taken a, a biog from something I found... And it might be accurate or not, so if you want to expand on it or correct me.
1: It's probably just horribly out of date, but uh, you, can, you can try me.
0: Okay, I'll introduce you with this. So Richard Sanderson is an improvising musician based in London. He has recorded with the groups Ticklish, Minnow, Lost Robots, and in duos with Mark Spybe mm-hmm. and Steve Beresford. He has recorded for several labels, including Grob, Textile, and Duophonic, and he has performed at festivals of experimental music throughout Europe. He is the curator of linear obsessional recordings.
1: That's all accurate.
0: It is. Mm-hmm. So the reason um, we're here doing this podcast is that I'm really interested in how people started playing their instruments in the first place and then how they kind of got into the whole experimental improvised music um, and people they've played with. So really my first question is how did you first start playing?
1: Okay, um, well firstly the instrument I play now is, is actually fairly recent. I've only been playing the Melodian for about 10 years. So my involvement with improvised music is much longer, um, about 25 Plus years. Um, and <clears throat> In answer to your question, I've always been interested in improvised music. Um, I first was aware of it when my father used to listen to, uh, I think it was Jazz Today on Radio 3. And so this would have been about 1975 and I, I wandered in, there was the most extraordinary noises coming out of the room which fascinated me and I said, Dad, what's this? And he said, oh, it's free jazz. I, t- I I switched on the tape recorder and recorded it, and um, it turned out to be um, something from Company Week. So it was Evan Parker and Derek Bailey, and I f- forget who else it was, but yes, it, you know, it was classic British non-idiomatic free improvisation, and I was pretty fascinated by it. Um, at the same time, I was very much into rock music and, um, you know, Hawkwind and stuff like this, okay. <laughs> and uh, the German bands and the German experimental music. But um, I was aware that there was this quite tough to listen to but very exciting music there as well. And um, it took me a long time to really get into it. It was really when I moved to, to London and started going to gigs because um, there wasn't a lot of it happening in Middlesbrough, to be perfectly honest. Um, I did... Do improvise music, but it was always in a with musicians who were just somewhat baffled by it, or it was coming from a more sort of cosmic rock angle, you know it's still often very rhythmic rather than you know completely free.
0: So, what were you playing? What was the first <clears throat> instrument? The
1: electric guitar was my right, first instrument because okay. i was in I was in punk bands and post punk bands for for several years, and the electric guitar was my instrument and keyboards because I used to write the songs on on keyboards when I came to uh London, it took me a while to actually start playing. I wanted to, but I wanted to find a Something that I could do, um, and I actually first started with toys, lots and lots of toy instruments, and um, and I played with people like Adam Bowman and uh, Kev Hopper and, and people I still, you know, know and are friends with now. But this was a good twenty-five years ago, I should think.
0: To and what re- year was that?
1: Sorry. To what year was that? Um, nineteen ninety, probably started around about nineteen ninety. And
0: how did you meet? People like Adam Bowman and um,
1: going to gigs, going to gigs, and you know, choosing the people I really liked, and, and speaking to them after gigs, and uh, and buying their CDs. <laughs> so <laughs> and
0: what the, what were the venues at that time?
1: Gosh, um, I used to go to somewhere on Balls Pond Road in Hackney. I used to go to a place called Dangerous Music Club. Uh, Evan Parker used to do gigs at the uh, um, the Aporto, which is now gone, but was sort of uh, Holborn Way, um, or somewhere else in King's Cross. We used to go to, and I used to go to Derek Bailey's company weeks at the Place Theatre.
0: Oh, what what were they company weeks?
1: Company weeks were things where Derek Bailey would assemble a lot of musicians. Uh, the majority from free improv, but also bring in musicians complete, from completely outside of that area. Musicians like Alexander Balanescu, the violinist, or you might bring in a, I don't know, um, a Shakahuchi player from, from Japan or something like this, or a folky, or on one memorable occasion he had um, the metal guitarist um, Buckethead. Joined in so, uh, you know, I saw a, a duet between Buckethead and Alexander Balanescu. So you, you, and he would just throw these people together ad hoc in any sort of combination, just to see what would come out, and it was always great. You know, it was always fascinating. I mean, sometimes the results just didn't work, but it was it was the excitement of that music that was just there for that moment, and I was I was hooked. So I um, I started thinking about how virtuosity seemed to be something that was that was valued in, in this music to a certain extent, and I, I was aware that as a guitarist I wasn't a virtuoso, and I certainly wasn't as a keyboard player I was still very much a sort of rock player So i I, somewhat influenced by Adam Bowman but also people like um, the Czech Republic musician um, Martin Clapper who had a vast collection of toys I, I started collecting toys and trying to work out my own way of playing with it because I thought it was quite interesting that it it did bring up questions of virtuosity if you if you were playing instruments that technically you can't play tunes with you can just make sounds with.
2: Right.
1: And um, and luckily I, I met other musicians who wanted to play with me, including people like Mark Brown who I still play with now. Um, Kev Hopper asked me to join the band Ticklish. I had a, a group with Mark Brown and Adam Bowman and Mike Walter so which went for a few years called Fraction okay. um, and that's basically it really, that's how I got in. And then later I thought I do want to play an instrument, there was lots of toy players coming that were appearing and I started thinking I wanted to do something else and I'd become very interested in folk music and I'd started to play the melodeon. And I thought, okay. you know, this is a this would be a really preposterous instrument to do improv with, <laughs> because it's um, it's possibly the most idiotically melodic instrument. It only plays in two major keys, and the, it has this in and out thing. So you play when you when you play it, each button plays two notes depending on whether you're pressing the bellows in or pulling them out. So it's nothing mm-hmm. like a piano accordion in that respect. And uh, the corresponding notes on the other side are always in harmony with whatever note you're playing. So it's it's very very difficult <laughs> to play something like a, a cluster, or um, or even a, a, you know two uh, two notes a semitone apart. And I thought this is quite an interesting challenge to try and take this instrument, which I love, as a, as a knees up folk instrument that I use in Cayley's and you know Morris dance gatherings and things like that and uh, and try and bring it back into the into the world of improv so I mess around with adding electronics to it which was painful because it kept (laughs) breaking and something would always go wrong and it end up having to play acoustically or it just wouldn't work as well so I eventually started just using it acoustically i trying to find other ways of, uh, of using it. And then lately I've just been working with feedback again and ampli- amplifying it and just bringing feedback into the mix and um, I'm really quite excited about it at the moment. OK. Yeah.
0: So, but you were playing folk, so were you playing folk at the same time? Yes, when you when you started playing melodeon, you started playing folk before you started yeah, playing. Yeah, I,
1: I wanted to. I wanted to. Okay. I wanted to play the music that I was I was particularly enjoying at the time, which was English folk music. Okay. And um, you know, so I started gathering with other people, and I, I took up the took up the melodeon, and um, and just sort of started turning up in pubs and learning some of the tunes from other people. and uh, that's how i got into that and then it was yeah then it was just a matter of taking up back this instrument which i was now learning back into improv and yeah it's 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 a tricky and peculiar instrument to use in it but i kind of enjoy the challenge of that
0: well we play together as well yes we do in the horse trio and
1: And we uh, did a nice duo we did do a duo. yeah
0: it's uh, i love the instrument it's really beautiful um i'm also interested in the fact that um because you've obviously been on the scene for quite a long time, yeah. <laughs> how it's sort of how it's evolved or changed.
1: Uh, well, it's partly difficult for me to say in a way because I did take a, a quite a sizeable period out right. when I um, when I first got interested in folk music, and I and I was a little troubled by improv and what, what I was doing in it and whether it was of any value, and I sort of went through a whole sort of looking into what I was doing and perhaps thinking, you know, using these toy instruments isn't really that fantastic. So... How
0: many years did you... So you played for quite a long time before you took a break. Is uh, that what you a, mean? Yeah,
1: probably about 15 years. Right. And then... And
0: there, was there a moment? What was the moment...
1: Well, it was a combination of things. I think it was seeing there were quite a few gigs I went to where other people were playing toys, right? Or, and there was even a toy orchestra. I'm not. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy what they were doing, but it ta- it kind of took away the uniqueness of what mm. I was doing at the time. And other people, mm-hmm. and also some people were doing it a lot better. I mean, Steve Beresford's always been a much better uh, toy player than I have as as Mar- uh, I am as has Martin Clapper. He's also. You know, a superb uh, player of toys and has a much better collection than I ever managed. And carrying these things around was a pain.
0: Right. So um And you do... But you've done other duos with Steve Barrisford. Yes. Is that since? or um, No, that was, was mainly, mainly
1: when I was still doing the toys thing. Oh, okay. And we had a, a trio as well with Anna Homler, the uh, American vocalist and toy player, in which we all sort of played toys and Anna sang. And we, oh, we okay. did some very nice gigs in... in in Germany and uh, Copenhagen as well as in London
2: okay
0: so then so you took a break
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then you came back
1: slowly wormed my way back <laughs> in and, and and discovered a much more vibrant scene than the one I'd left I thought it was suddenly very exciting there was a lot of whole sort of new generation of younger players um, a lot of young bearded men who (laughs) had gone past the minimalist stage and were sort of playing with you know in a in a a new and interestingly energetic style that still owed nothing to free jazz as such so I thought this was very exciting and then there were a lot of women involved and going to the concerts which was you know if I think back to the club I used to run, which I forgot to mention earlier, oh, yes. I used to run a club called the Club Room
2: okay. for five
1: years, which I ran with John Russell and um, and Mike Walter, and that was a weekly improv club. So you would have you where know, was that? That was at a place called the Queen's Arms in Penton Street. It was uh, just off the end of is it, Chapel Market. Yeah. Oh, it's so Angel. Isn't Angel. It? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it was an upstairs room, and we had, ran that for about five and a half years until it was closed down. And, well, the council came, and at the point at that point, it was, you weren't allowed to have more than two in a room playing.
0: Oh, right, yeah, the two in So Alder, they, they came hmm. and said,
1: you've got to go and you've got to have proper fire escapes, you've got to make this into a proper venue. And the landlord did all of that, and actually did mm-hmm. set it all up. And we, had, we were sort of kicked out for a little while. Right. And the landlord followed all these instructions, made this room really beautiful, and then just after he did that, we, we came back for about three sessions, and he, he took us aside and said, "Someone's just offered me absolutely ridiculous amount of money to buy the pub." So oh, that's no. that. And then I, I sort of we had a sort of wandering club that went and played in various places around in London. Where, you know, sort of four, four or eight week runs, and then it just became so exhausting. I um, I went to do a monthly club. Right. which was called Baggage Reclaim. Where was that? That was at the 12-bar club. And that was oh, okay. a bit more sort of, I would deliberately mix things up. So I would have folk musicians on, I would have electronic musicians, I would have the odd rock band. And, and hopefully the people would come from all the different disciplines and see other stuff and, oh, okay. um, and would fill the place out. That was the theory. Did all right. Did it for about four years, I think. And um, it was a nice club.
0: So it wasn't just improvised, it wasn't improvised It wasn't all, all improvised yeah.
1: by any okay. stretch of the imagination, but there was, I always tried to squeeze some in.
0: And did you play? Yeah. And at that point were you playing with similar people or did you meet new people?
1: Yeah, it was probably the same sort of people, but in this business, as you know, you're always meeting new musicians. Yeah. And there are some musicians that you really click with and... Uh, and others who don't, I suppose, or <laughs> the people who just who don't think you're all worth playing with. So it's kind of interesting. But yeah, I was very excited when I when I came back to the improv scene and saw the younger, more mixed crowd. And so,
0: what kind of year? Just to think about when that was, ish.
1: When I came back. Yeah. Um, just I'm thinking. Sorry, four or five years ago. Okay.
0: Probably. That's really interesting. So um, what we're going to do is listen to something. Tell us a little bit about, just a little introduction before we listen. Okay, well this
1: is is a sort of crazy idea really, which was um, I've always been a big fan of Mark Brown's playing and he lives in Aylesbury and I'd also recently discovered the guitarist uh, Daniel Thompson and thought he was a, a fantastic player and Daniel and I had done a few duos and and I thought we're really nice to have a trio so Mark and Daniel had not met each other but we um, Daniel and I went up to Aylesbury Mark had booked a church hall we met and played for an afternoon and had a few beers and uh, just played in this lovely well it was a guides hall actually lovely okay. wooden floored building and recorded it and uh, and put it out so it's the first time we'd ever played together but <laughs> but the results were great and I was really really very pleased that the the three musicians should work so well
0: okay we're going to have a little listen and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about it So we just listened to The Nearest Emergency Phone uh, with yourself and with Mark Brown and Daniel Thompson. So what was Mark playing?
1: Well, Mark was... Nominally playing soprano saxophone, but he also brings along an enormous amount of debris and <laughs> bits and pieces. He has uh, a, a fine collection of tam-tams and gongs, cymbals, lots of tiny, small instruments, lots of bird call devices. Um, he's got a, a co- whole collection of rubber squeaky chickens, <laughs> all of which get used um, as Various drums and percussions, lots of things, and he bows. So he's, he, in the years that I didn't play with him, he's amassed this vast <laughs> collection of extra things which he brings, which was a big surprise to me So, uh, when, when we turned up to play. Which uh, I didn't tell you about that bit, did I? No, you didn't tell me about that bit. <laughs> I didn't tell you on air. Um, yeah, because um, we went up and... Um, I can't remember what we recorded recording and what we didn't. Did I say did how we got together? No. OK, so we I'd played with Mark... Um, I'd played with Mark in a band called Fraction about 20 years earlier, and I'd then got to meet um, Daniel Thompson and done a duo with him uh, a few times, and, and I really liked his playing. I just thought it would be great to, to get this trio together. So we travelled to Aylesbury, Mark, um, Daniel and I went on the train, and then when we met Mark in this guides' hut with this fantastic acoustic, <laughs> Um, Mark was there with with just gazillions of bits of kit and, and racks of, of um, cymbals and gongs and toys and rubber chickens and all sorts of things, and uh, and I thought, oh right, so things changed a bit, and then we just played for the f- and and everything that's on that recording is is the four pieces recorded as we uh, there's no editing, there was no ch- stuff we chucked out. That's it. That's what we record. What we played and what we recorded.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. So, uh, have you done anything since? You... we have
1: done a few gigs, right. and um, they've all been really good fun. Actually, really, and gone down really well. So, yeah, I'm very excited about the trio. I mean, I love the boring name as well. <laughs> Brown, Thompson, Sanderson is, is is in the tradition of very boring in British improv names. You know, uh, there was a cartoon once that said that thing about improvisation is musicians really have the musicians really have really weird names or really uh really boring names and for the weird ones he gave the example of uh, alexander von schlippenbach or Derek bailey <laughs> i'm not going to say anything about your name of course but i no. think you know which bracket you fit
0: into <laughs> okay and um, so that that um track or the ep i guess was released on on linear obsessional it was so this is your label? It is. And so how did that
1: begin? It came about um, because I wasn't able to get to gigs and I wasn't able to do radio shows and stuff because I, because I had a family mm. suddenly and uh, it really, really made a big difference. And I thought, I want to get involved and do stuff. And I discovered the world of net labels where people were putting stuff out under creative commons and, and basically, you know, releasing everything for free. And I investigated this world and discovered there were some really fantastic labels and releases out there, and an awful lot of crud as well, <laughs> um, which isn't surprising if you you know if you're giving stuff away. Then there's there's going to be a lot of a lot of rubbish out there. And I thought, well, I looked at it and I looked at the labels which I really liked, labels like um, Impulsive Habitat, which is a, a wonderful label that does uh, field recordings, or sometimes altered field recordings, but all field recording and they're beautifully presented usually you know they sometimes have pdf booklets that go with them and stuff like this and i thought i could take the best bits of the the, the labels i really admire and have a go at doing it myself and linear obsessional was the result and it was quite easy to do at first until i had the daft idea of maybe doing physical copies as well so that so that i could actually pay people so that because um, you know obviously kind it of, must be kind of frustrating if somebody like um uh Hannah um Hannah
0: Marshall Hannah
1: Marshall somebody like Hannah Marshall puts out a, a record and i've had nearly a thousand downloads That's of amazing. it and she's not seen a penny so i keep thinking oh, I must uh you know must issue a physical edition of it which i sell and, and i much to my surprise even though the, the editions are very small usually 50 but I try and make them kind of bespoke and nice little objects. And they do sell. So even though people have the choice, they can have the music as a as free download or you can have something they buy, that if you go, give them some, the option of a, a physical object, people are quite keen to, to have them. And also they then great like re- gigs the musicians. as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's all good. There's quite a few artists on your label now. Yeah. If, if I asked you, just like towards the beginning, like, or is there anyone that comes to mind?
1: Um, well, let me say how I, I started it. When I started it, I just wrote a, a message, I think, on Facebook or somewhere saying, I'm thinking of starting this label, if anybody's got any stuff you want to put out, just, um, you know, let me know. And so it, immediately surprised. stuff started <laughs> flying yeah. in. Okay. And um, then it also gave me a chance to sort of put out things by friends of mine who i felt completely ignored um unjustly so um i'm trying to think of an example the, the composer sam fendrick for example who who writes this extraordinary complex um but often very witty music um and you know he's incredibly self-effacing and he doesn't really push himself out there so i was delighted to be able to stick out some of his stuff okay. um there is yeah, I mean, it was basically, the, the, first of all, it was people who, who'd approached me. Then I started writing to people I liked and saying, you know, Chris, um, Chris Whitehead's an example. I just really liked his field recordings that he'd done. And I also liked the fact he's from the similar neck of the woods to me. He's from Whitby. <laughs> and I wrote to him and said, you know, would you be remotely interested in putting out something on, on this label? And, and, you know, I'm delighted that everybody, everybody... I've asked has said yes That's amazing. Uh, which is extraordinary you know because I'm not promising any money at all uh, but not a single person has, has, has yet said no I, I really don't want to do that so I'm, I'm very pleased with it it has just sadly become rather hard work <laughs> which is not the original intention the original intention was it for it to be quite easy and now I've sort of given myself a very challenging sort of amount of releases to do And I've kind of paused it for a while 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 I'm doing a few other things and um, hope to sort of get it back into action with a a fantastic release by an artist from the Canary Islands called called Paco Rossique, who's a sound artist and um, phonographer, I suppose. He he uses field recordings, amongst other things. And um, I'm very excited about that, and I'll be putting that out probably in about a month.
0: Okay, so well, what? Well, this is not dated. We're not sure when this podcast mm-hmm. is going to go out, but okay. you know, we're obviously linear, obsessional. There's quite a few things already.
1: I certainly are. I've lost track of how yeah, many releases I, there are now. Um, they slowed down in the first year. I did a ridiculous amount. It was something nice. like thirty releases in the first year because it's it's easy. People send you the um, the tracks. Once you've done the PDF booklets and the cover. You whack it out and uh, and there it's, it's out on the internet. It can be out in, you know, f- between receiving the, the tracks that people want to release and releasing it could be as little as a couple of days. So it was dead easy to just keep sticking tracks out. And then once I started saying, well, I'm, I want to do physical editions, then it was like suddenly running into mud, um, really thick mud. It's everything slowed down because I'm right. do- making these, by hand, you know, with a CD duplicator, doing one at a time, and then hand stamping the CDs with rubber stamps and printing off the covers and cutting them all out with a guillotine.
0: They're really beautiful. And
1: uh, taking the photographs to go in, and all of this, and and usually putting little objects inside as well, to try and make them something worth buying. Uh And once I started doing that, then the releases went down to about one a month, so I went from yeah, I think it was thirty six releases in the okay. first year to about twelve for <laughs> the next couple of years so um and this year, I don't think yes, we've won release so far this year
0: okay, um, so there's another track that you sent um, mm-hmm. that we're going to listen to, but this is a solo track of your of you. Right. we can have a listen to this, and then you can talk about it after. So, we just listened to Shade um, from Air Buttons, featuring yourself, Richard Sanderson, on Melodion.
1: There is a Melodion in there. Somewhere. somewhere.
0: It's very unsettling. (laughs) It is. um, Um,
1: It's quite scary. I mean, the title is Shade, as in ghost, I suppose, because I just thought it was a really creepy sounding (laughs) track. Um, All those little rushes and gasps of air, which are mainly done with the air button on the Melodion, which is the... The button that you, you all squeeze box players need to be able to get the right amount of air for a note, so that you can alter okay. it as you play. But it also makes a nice little rushing of air noise itself. There's a few of the high pitch noises, but I'm. it's of all the tracks on the album, that's probably the most processed, in that I put a lot of. Uh, I sort of cut it up and and edited it, and then stuck some noises of crows from my garden onto it as well. And it, the, the end result is. Yeah, pretty, pretty horrific. (laughs) In a lot of respects, unsettling, as you say.
0: Well, you were saying as we were listening to it, somebody's approached you
1: off the back of it. I've been asked to soundtrack a horror film, which I'm incredibly excited by, and. yeah, because I have It's m- a
0: short, short no, film. No, it's, it's, it's a feature film. It's film. a feature. A feature film. Feature film with proper
1: actors in and everything. Yeah.
0: Congratulations.
1: Uh, it's still in the um, early stages. Is I there
0: mean. a name for the film at the moment? Or?
1: I'm trying to remember what it is. I think it's. I'm going. I, I may be required to keep quiet at yes. this stage. Yes. Okay.
0: Later. Yeah. Oh, that's fine.
1: But it's. But it is. It is happening. And yeah.
0: how did they hear the track from um, your linear obsession? Or I like?
1: know. The writer of the film, and uh, he heard the track. Uh, he heard the album, bought the album. In fact, are you allowed and to say the
0: writer's name?
1: I'll again keep that.
0: I keep okay. Keep fine. that under
1: my hat at the moment. So we just, we'll I just know have they're to. Very, they're very precious about no, what information comes out. I
0: understand it's fine, but when it does come out, it will I'll, be I'll featured from
1: the rooftops. Yeah,
0: composer. So thinking about all the stuff you've done and, and future now now and the future collaborations have you got any things coming up that no
2: <laughs> no, Johnson,
1: no no i had a really great flurry of of activity at the beginning of, of of this year and now i have nothing in my calendar whatsoever is there
0: any any collaborations you're th- you're thinking you might
1: mm. is
0: anyone from your label that you you've release that you think you might collaborate with as a musician
1: oh i am going to be doing something with chris whitehead at some point they um okay. he is working with a, a phenomenal photographer who's also from the northeast um called gavin and they're working on a piece about a road called the black path which runs through i suppose now decaying industry of teesside and, and um yeah, there's some sort of three-way collaboration going on there. Uh, I'm not quite sure what my contribution is going to be, but that that'll be happening. Yeah, and I'm always always keen to collaborate with other other people, whether it's actually live playing, or you know, in the the, the sort of modern way of sending each other wave files and and uh, playing along with them. Oh, that's
0: amazing. Which... Well, we look forward to hearing something. So it'll be. You, Chris.
1: It'll probably be um, some kind of there'll be some kind of performance and there'll be s- some kind of release with Chris Whitehead, myself, and Gavin, whose surname I can't remember, <laughs> uh, who's the, f- the photographer, and uh, we'll probably be providing some kind of text as well. Okay.
0: Well, Richard, I think it's been really good speaking you. to I you. I should have
1: said that I also like do like playing in the horse trio. Oh yes, with the you. horse trio.
0: <laughs> Um, and we play at the Horse, yeah, and the Horse Music Club, which I think we're going to be doing something.
1: I hope so. And anytime so, you want to sort of throw throw me in with anybody else, I'm always keen to play with other musicians. So
0: great. Anything okay. Else? Well, Richard Sanderson, thank you very much.
1: It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you. <laughs>